0: I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and I'm Tiffany Bates, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about
1: a win for election integrity, a loss for one of the Constitution's lost clauses,
0: and we'll interview Sixth Circuit Judge Jeff Sutton. Supreme Court issued decisions in four cases on Monday of this week, and I went over to the court to hear the justices announce a few of those decisions. And noticeably, Justice Anthony Kennedy was absent from the court. Once I saw that, I figured the decision in Gill versus Whitford, which is the partisan gerrymandering case, would not be coming out. I have a feeling Kennedy will want to be present for that one. Um, and it's not all that uncommon for justices to miss a day here or there at the end of the term. Uh, my colleague who was with me joked that maybe Kennedy retired and didn't tell anybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I doubt that Anthony Kennedy is ghosting the Supreme Court. Uh, but it has been more than 255
1: days since gill was argued the longest the court has taken taken to decide um, a case in decades and according to adam feldman from empirical scotus the longest a case has ever taken to be decided was holder versus hall a 1994 case which took 269 days and adam also reported that since 1950 the court has only taken longer than 255 days to decide 10
0: cases So Gill was argued on the second day of this term back on October 3rd But, of course, the justices heard oral argument in Benisek versus Lamone, a second partisan gerrymandering case, and that was in March. So that could be part of the reason for the holdup here. Then again, there didn't seem to be very much consensus among the justices coming out of the Benisek oral argument. And I think Justice Breyer suggested at the argument that maybe they should get out a blackboard and try out all the different theories the challengers presented for invalidating redistricting maps. Um, So maybe that's what they're doing uh, while we're waiting for that decision to come out. But let's move on to the cases that were decided this week, including what's being called Ohio's Great Voter Purge.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, so the biggest case this week is Houston versus A. Philip Randolph Institute, and it's a big win for election integrity and for the Buckeye State. Ohio SG Eric Murphy argued the case for the state, and he was also nominated to serve as a judge on the Sixth Circuit just a few days ago. So I think it's safe to say that Eric is having the best week of his life. <laughs> and Definitely. We interviewed him earlier this year, so you can check that out too. Uh, so back to the opinion. It was 5-4 and written by Alito and joined by the chief, Kennedy, Thomas, and Gorsuch. And the court held that Ohio's process for removing voters On change of residence grounds, does not violate federal law. So, Ohio's process is pretty unremarkable here. For individuals who haven't voted in two years, Ohio will send a confirmation notice asking if they still live at their registered address. And if the individual doesn't return the notice and doesn't vote for an additional four years in any election, Ohio will remove them from the rolls. Two advocacy groups and an Ohio resident challenged this process as a violation of the National Voter Registration Act and the Help America Vote Act. The Sixth Circuit agreed with the challengers, but the court reversed this week. At first, the court wrote that Ohio's process follows the NVRA's removal process to the letter, and that the NVR and the NVRA makes it mandatory for states to undertake an effort to clean up their voter rolls. The challengers also claimed that Ohio's process violated the failure to vote clause of the NVRA, which prohibits a state from removing a voter based solely on the failure to vote. But the court wrote that the failure to vote clause simply forbids the use of non-voting as the sole criterion for removing a registrant, and Ohio does not use it that way. So basically, the Majority said to the dissent, what part of solely don't you understand? (laughs) Because this was uh, the big argument in the case. Justice Thomas concurred, writing separately to note that the challenger's reading of the NVRA would seriously interfere with the state's constitutional authority to set and enforce voter qualifications. Justice Breyer dissented, joined by Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan, writing that Ohio's process violates the NVRA's requirement that a state make a reasonable effort to remove the names of ineligible voters, since using a registrant's failure to vote is not a reasonable method for identifying voters whose registrations are likely invalid. Alito, in the majority opinion, rejected this claim, pointing out that it's not for federal courts to go beyond the restrictions in the law and strike down any st- state law that doesn't meet the justices' arbitrary conceptions of reasonableness. He said policy judgments like these are properly addressed not in court but in Congress and Congress determined that when it passed the NVRA that a failure to vote after receiving a written notice from the state is in fact a reasonable method for identifying voters who have moved out of state. Justice Sotomayor also dissented separately, writing to emphasize that, in her opinion, Breyer's reading of the text is bolstered by the essential purposes explicitly stated in the NVRA to increase registration and enhance the participation of eligible voters in federal elections. But really, the NVRA has two main goals. One is, as Justice Sotomayor pointed out, to maximize the number of eligible voters on the rolls. But it also has a, a stated purpose of minimizing the number of ineligible voters, which is also very important. So there's been a lot of outcry from the left already about this decision. A lot of the sky is falling. But as usual, this is a lot of <laughs> hyperbole. Um Ohio has made a reasonable effort to ensure only eligible voters can vote and did so while complying with federal voting laws. And so for those who care about free free and fair elections, this is a pretty big win.
0: The court also decided Sveen versus Mellon. Justice Kagan wrote for the majority of the court and only Justice Gorsuch dissented. The court upheld a Minnesota law that automatically revokes a former spouse as a life insurance beneficiary upon divorce. The issue was whether retroactive application of this law to life insurance policies that predated passage of the law violates the Constitution's contracts clause. So this clause of the Constitution prohibits states from passing laws that impair the obligation of contracts. Now, the majority held that this the Minnesota law was designed to reflect the policyholder's intent under the assumption that most people don't want— Their life insurance benefits to go to their former spouses uh, once they have passed on, and uh, the court found that the law merely supplied a default rule which the policyholder could undo. But Justice Gorsuch dissented, arguing that retroactive application of the law is inconsistent with the history of the contracts clause. He said the founders took the view that treating existing contracts as inviolable would benefit society— by ensuring that all persons could count on the ability to enforce promises lawfully made to them. So the, the long-lost contracts clause will recede back into the background of the Constitution. Uh, the, next we have Washington versus United
1: States. The court split four to four in this case, which automatically affirms the judgment below. Uh, this case concerns the fishing rights of Northwest Indian tribes under 19th century treaties with the United States. And this was a long-running case that began in the 1970s to clarify the tribe's rights. And Justice Kennedy sat on the Ninth Circuit panel that reviewed the case in 1985, so he had to recuse. And Kennedy realized he participated in, in the case pretty late in the game. I think it was just before oral argument. But you really can't blame him for not realizing he participated in in the case when he was on the Ninth Circuit 33 years ago.
0: <laughs> the course, uh, the, the final decision is China Agritech versus RESH, And this was a majority opinion written by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And everybody agreed that a putative cla- putative class action members cannot file a new class action and take advantage of tolling the statute of limitations for the original class action really riveting stuff. Basically, this would turn one class action into a case that won't die. Justice Sotomayor concurred in the judgment, saying that the ruling should only apply to class actions under the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, which was the basis for this particular case. But anyway, on to something more interesting. We recently spoke with Judge Jeff Sutton. Jeff Sutton is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Judge Sutton.
2: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So, Justice Lewis Powell hired you to be a law clerk, but you ended up also working for Justice Scalia. Tell us about how you ended up in Scalia's chambers.
2: Yeah, so the tradition at the court is each retired justice gets one law clerk. So Justice Powell was retired senior justice. I was his one law clerk. And the tradition at the court is that the clerk for the retired justice can clerk for an active justice's chambers. So you might ask yourself, why did I decide to clerk for Justice Scalia? Uh, The reality is I was pretty new to law, but a transformative experience in law school was reading Tempting of America. It was a gift from my father-in-law, Christmas of my 3L year, and uh, I have to say it really changed my view of the law and really affected my view of how we interpret statutes and the Constitution. Um, I think the other reason I was interested in clerking for Justice Scalia is I, of course, had read many of his opinions in law school – And I love them. Uh, In fact, my goal in clerking was to learn how to write like him. Um, That's probably an unreachable goal. But uh, so when I asked uh, Justice Scalia if he'd allow me to clerk for him, he he said yes. Um, The upshot is I chose him. He did not choose me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Scalia once apparently said, I wouldn't have hired Jeff Sutton. For God's sake, he went to Ohio State. Uh, but then he followed up with, and he's one of the best, very best law clerks I ever had. So you obviously had a special relationship with Justice Scalia. And what's your what's your favorite memory from your time at the court?
2: Well, Justice Scalia is not known for exaggeration, but he might have been exaggerating a bit there. Uh, <laughs> but we did have a wonderful relationship. And I think part of it is to recall that Justice Scalia was a professor first and a judge later. And I think he really enjoyed clerks that embraced what he was doing, uh, became passionate about it. And for me, it was very difficult not to be passionate about the law after working with Justice Scalia. Um, my one memory slash story, um, as I said earlier, I it's difficult to work for him and not want to try to write like him. And so I thought during the year I would really try to pay attention and see if there was some secret to this gift of his by the end of the year, I really can't say I could put my finger on, oh, it's an IQ issue. It's He spoke several languages issue, or he just he was an only child issue. It didn't seem to be any of those things. But there was one story that was kind of amusing and is probably the closest you'll get to figuring out why he writes the way he does. So one morning, he'd been working on an opinion late at night. It happened to be one of my cases. He brought it in to chambers. He had the five law clerks sit down in front of him. Seemed to be in a good mood, but I was a little nervous since I'd been the one working on the opinion. And before you knew it, he started giving us a dramatic reading of this concurrence, partial concurrence, partial dissent. Uh, my first reaction was, I think the natural, healthy reaction is, "Who does he think he is, and why should we be listening to this guy give us a dramatic reading of his opinion?" <laughs> we have a lot of other things to do. Um, but it was it was hard after a little while not to appreciate the joy. The language gave him the joy of the analysis, the joy of writing the way he'd written. Um, quite sadly, most of my work had been left on the cutting room floor. Uh, he'd spun <laughs> my straw into his gold. and But the real point wasn't how excellent the writing was. The real point was how much joy the writing had given him. So for me, the reason Justice Scalia writes the way he does is he gets joy from it, wants to do it again. And I really think it's a function of wanting to be a good writer. It's not some inherent gift
0: one gets at birth. We do a bit of dramatic uh, concurrence and dissent reading in our offices as well. (laughs) Good for you. So you served as one of the first uh, Solicitors General for the state of Ohio, and you've been credited with setting the model for the modern state Solicitor General office. Where did you get the idea, and how did you go about standing up your first office?
2: Yeah, so I'm not—you know, I I don't know— there were a lot of people that involved, you know, Greg Coleman in Texas had a big role in this, Richard Cordray in Ohio. There's quite a few people, so I wouldn't say I deserve any particular credit. Um, I, it was a transformative job, though, and I really enjoyed it. it. I'd say it was the best legal job I had, above being a judge, above being a law clerk at the court. And I think what was I found really interesting about it was realizing how exciting it was to represent a state, um, if you stand up on behalf of the United States, uh, that's exciting, but I'm, it's difficult to say exactly what that means. It's such a big country with such diverse groups, interests, and so forth. When you stand up on behalf of the state of Ohio, I really knew what that meant. I knew Ohio. I knew rural Ohio. I knew suburban Ohio. I knew the urban parts of Ohio. So I became very proud to do it. Um, one of the other things that was fun to do in the 1990s is the my boss, Betty Montgomery, who was the attorney general, decided to um, that we, she would use her office to take a position on lots of national issues. So we not only litigated cases in the U.S. Supreme Court where we were the parties, but we decided to do quite a few cases where we were writing amicus briefs on behalf of Ohio and eventually many other states as a way of signaling to the court that, you know, a case had an issue that affected quite a few state governments. And that may have been the most enjoyable part of the experience, and I think you see it now being done quite a bit by um, Democratic uh, state AGs, Republican state AGs, and I think virtually all of the AG offices now have a solicitor general-like position, which I think has been very good for the states and very good for the courts. The courts do quite a bit better when the advocacy is better.
1: You argued a dozen cases at the Supreme Court before becoming a judge. Do any of these arguments stand out in particular?
2: Well, um, the first one is really quite boring, General Motors versus Tracy, but I was terrified about the whole experience. <laughs> so the reality that I survived it without feigning or doing anything else inappropriate during the argument was very satisfying. Um, so maybe that's the most memorable because I was the most anxious about it. Um, perhaps the most interesting case was City of Bernie versus Flores, um, a challenge to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and whether it applied um, legitimately to the states. Uh, we conceded that it was legitimate to apply refer to the federal government. And um, that that argument really had a big impact on me. Um, at one point during the argument, I think it was Justice Scalia, if I'm remembering correctly, pushed me hard and, and said, now, no, Mr. Sutton, do you really think the court as an institution, and non-elected institution, this body can withstand knocking down a law that has been passed almost unanimously in Congress? And my response to him then, which has been a very consistent theme for me since, was that I thought if the court invalidated RIFRA as applied to the states, we'd end up with 51 rifras. And uh, that prediction wasn't exactly true. Uh, we still have the national RIFRA, that's one. About half the states have passed state RIFRAs. That gets you part of the way. And then quite a few states, through state court opinions, have rejected Smith and essentially um, opted for a strict scrutiny regime when it comes to state constitutional claims in their states. So I wasn't exactly right that there would be 51 RFRAs, but it's pretty close, and I thought that was a pretty healthy development.
1: Did you have any traditions or superstitions when you were arguing?
2: I hate to acknowledge a superstition, um, (laughs) particularly publicly, uh, (laughs) but the reality is I did wear a tie that looked very similar to each argument. Uh, So maybe that— counts as something of a superstition. I think the the other thing that would happen though is, and I think a lot of advocates do this, is everyone has a routine to just get through the stress of the argument. And um, so I would, I'd work out quite a bit during the days before the argument, do a very big workout the morning of to clear my head, not eat too much, very good idea. And, um, and frankly, pray a little bit. <laughs> that usually helped also.
0: We've heard uh, some advocates will eat Four bananas beforehand, or they'll have salmon the night before.
2: Uh, I didn't have any one meal. I I found it very difficult to eat a lot the night before in the morning of. But I also thought it would not be a good idea to run out of calories yeah, <laughs> during the imagine. middle of an argument.
1: True. So, do you miss being on that side of the podium, like the adre- adrenaline rush? Uh,
2: very much, very much. I, I I thought when I went on the bench, it would be the same thing. Uh, intellectual tennis, but just from the other side of the bench, we would debate cases and issues, and it would be great fun. In fact, I'd I'd do more of it, was my reaction. In part, I was right. Uh, It is intellectual tennis. It is the judge gets to talk plenty and ask questions. That's our custom. Um, But the adrenaline rush is really quite different. Um, As one way of pointing this out, I sleep very well before oral arguments right now and eat as much <laughs> as I like. Uh, that was not true back when I was an advocate. Um, when I was an advocate, before the argument, I would say to myself, I'm just so stressed out. Why am I doing this, so, this to myself voluntarily? I <laughs> could have stayed as a teacher. and um, But by the time I sat down at the end of the argument, I thought, I have got to do this again. And I think the adrenaline point is that there's... some. Um, so much, whether it's anxiety, concern, thought about what the justices or judges might ask you, you're constantly trying to think through, will I be ready to answer this question or that question? And when you sit down, having realized, well, it may not have been perfect, but I did did know what was coming and did have an answer, that's a very satisfying thing to be able to say. The, um Churchill said about war, there's nothing more exhilarating than being shot at and missed. Um, I was hit a few times, uh, but most of the time I, I, they missed.
0: So moving to your, your current position as an appeals court judge, you have a reputation for being a feeder judge, sending many of your clerks off to the Supreme Court. So tell us, what's your secret?
2: I'm afraid the secret is not me, but them. I've had the good fortune of just hiring a lot of terrific clerks, and I would have been shocked if a justice hadn't hired them. Uh, They're just really wonderful lawyers, really terrific people. They're wonderful to have in chambers. They've become great friends over time. So I think the, um, the answer is I've been really fortunate in the clerks I've managed to hire.
1: We've heard about daily runs with Judge Wilkinson and barbecue outings with Judge Pryor. Do you have any special traditions with your clerks?
2: I wish I could do daily runs. Unfortunately, I have artificial hips, so that, that ended for me <laughs> when I was 35. But I I do—I'm I, a physical person. I enjoy sports, and I I do work out quite a bit. So my poor clerks suffer through— often a hike. Um, we <laughs> have biked from Columbus to Cincinnati. We usually do that a few times of the year. Now, not everybody, no one has to do these hikes. No one has to do these bike rides, but many of them have. I probably had about 10 clerks that have done the 100-mile bike ride from Columbus to Cincinnati, uh, which wow. is pretty impressive. And uh, and we've done hikes and um, lots, and including cultural things, extracurricular events. I try to do whatever we do in or respect their interests in a given year. If, if they like one thing, we'll do that. If they like something else, we'll do that. Um, I'm not going to tell you which clerk, but I even had a law clerk that I taught how to ride a bike. Um, wow. and That was might have been the most satisfying thing I've ever done as a judge.
0: That's pretty incredible. So you have a new book out, 51 Imperfect Solutions, which is about how state constitutional law can provide a first line of defense for individual liberty. So tell us a little bit about the book.
2: Well, I mentioned during the City of Bernie oral argument my response to Justice Scalia's question about uh, RIFRA, and I said if RIFRA was invalidated against the states, uh, we might end up with 51 RIFRAs. And uh, that's essentially where the title comes from that there are 51 constitutions, 50 state constitutions, one U.S. constitution. Um, I guess one idea behind the book is that when you think of c- constitutional law stories in this country, What we learn in law school, there's a real focus on the federal courts and the U.S. Constitution. And I thought as an initial matter, it might be healthy to tell some constitutional law stories from the perspective of the state and federal constitutions and state and federal high courts. Uh, So that was one goal in the book. Uh, The other goal in the book was that when we think of constitutional law and the states – we tend very quickly to think of the state's role as being negative, as the state setting a negative example that leads to this or that new doctrine in federal constitutional law. Now, there's quite a bit of support for that in American history, and I didn't set out to contradict that narrative, but I did think it might be healthy to supplement it with stories in which the states had been leaders um, when it comes to rights, innovation, new liberties, and where, in, in a few chapters in the book, um, actually the U.S. Supreme Court was the one that made a mistake. And so, and then several of the chapters are ones where it's really it's not obvious who the hero or the villain is. <laughs> the, the chapter just shows it's really quite complicated as long as we pay attention to the roles of the state and the federal courts. Uh, I think it surprises most Americans, including most American lawyers, that if you want to challenge the validity of a state or local law, You have two shots, not just one to do so. You can attack it under the state constitution and you can attack it under the federal constitution. And it's well to remember that all of our individual rights in the federal constitution originated in the state constitution. So those are some of the themes of the book and thanks for asking about it.
0: So, Judge Bill Pryor, who we've had on the podcast before, and we talk about yeah. him an awful lot. I think we we've have got to a, mention him in every episode. Yeah, a prior, prior quota per episode. Uh, he wrote a great review of your book for National Review Online, and I just wanted to read a couple lines from it. He said, "If ever America needed a contemporary evangelist for Madison's vision of that double security, federal circuit court judge Jeffrey Sutton would be federalism's Billy Graham." Judge Sutton has preached the gospel of federalism throughout his professional career.
2: Well, uh, that was very kind of Bill or Judge <laughs> Pryor, maybe we should say. Um, I should tell you that uh, that friendship is a um, – there's a funny – a fun story behind that friendship. Uh, it was a very significant event for both of us to work. He was the attorney general for Alabama, and I was the state solicitor for Ohio. And in the first Federalist Society meeting I'd ever been to, I went to the National Convention probably in 97 or 98. I can't remember exactly. He and I were put on a panel about um, the education funding lawsuits uh, that have come around the country since the U.S. Supreme Court's 1973 Rodriguez decision. And I think the way the panel was designed, the Federal Society likes to have a balanced panel. I think Bill and I were supposed to be the conservative side of this against (laughs) these lawsuits. And then I, I can't remember our other guests or the panelists, and they were supposed to be supportive of these lawsuits. In my recollection of the panel, and Bill supports me on this memory as I started talking about it and I started saying, well, you know, at least um, I may not have liked these lawsuits. I lost the one in Ohio, so I wasn't happy about that. But I said, you know, it's better that it happened at the state level than if it had happened at the U.S. Supreme Court level. That could have been really problematic. And Bill quickly turned and said, well, no, these are these are just terrible lawsuits all around. There's no exceptions. <laughs> and so the two people that were supposed to be on the same side of the debate spent the next half hour arguing with each other and— <laughs> Frankly, this book grows out of that that initial debate, and uh, it's really been fun for Bill and I to continue to talk about it, and when I went back to private practice, he was kind enough to hire me for several cases that I argued on behalf of Alabama, so it's really a wonderful friendship. I don't think I'd be a federal judge but for Bill Pryor.
0: That's wonderful to hear. So we have
1: one final question. If you could have a conversation with any justice, living or dead, who would you pick, and what would you talk about?
2: Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so Justice Jackson uh, grew up in the same, really same small town my mother grew up in in northwestern Pennsylvania. And my family's been there for as long as his family has. So I've heard so many stories about him and he's a wonderful writer. And I think I really would have enjoyed hearing stories about northwestern Pennsylvania, his writing. Um, but I, I actually, if I had to pick just one, I'm afraid it would not be him. It would probably be... The first John Marshall Harlan, um, Plessy descent and so forth. And my reason for that is, I, you know, one of the great um, tragedies in American history is the failure of Reconstruction. And he was a witness to that. And he was from Kentucky, so he had a really interesting perspective on this. And I really would enjoy an hour-long discussion over dinner with him about what he think went wrong... Is there anything we could do about it today? Because it's, we're, we're, you know, we're still living with that tragedy, and it's just so unfortunate. And, and he, he seemed to see the issue at the time in a way no one else did.
0: I think that would be a great conversation to, to witness. <laughs> well, thank you, Judge, so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, ghosting the court edition. <laughs> I'm going to give an excuse for a justice's absence from the court, and Tiffany will guess who the justice was. Are you ready? Yes. Let's I, do it. I hope some of these are hard. <laughs> In 1939, the court announced it would adjourn for the summer on May 29th, and this justice ended up missing the final conference for a case on June 3rd because he went home to Elkton, Kentucky for a family reunion. Oh, Kentucky. I can give you I can give you a hint.
1: If yeah, that's I need right. a hint.
0: He was one of the four horsemen during the New Deal era.
1: From Kentucky. From Kentucky. Um... I like Judge Sutton. Literally just talked about
0: this. (laughs) I can't remember. It was Justice James McReynolds. Okay. so Uh, So he missed the final conference for Coleman versus Miller. And this was a case involving whether Kansas properly ratified the proposed child labor amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So when the court released the opinion, it indicated that it was equally divided on one issue in the case. And this perplexed a lot of people because all nine justices had otherwise participated in deciding the case. But apparently, this particular issue was hammered out at that final conference that Justice McReynolds missed. So apparently none of the justices wanted to call him back um, because, <laughs> and this is this is in the the Supreme Court Historical Society had, a, had an article about this last year, um, because apparently he would have told them, frankly, go to hell. Um, and so uh, another justice just said, you know, we're just going to say we're evenly divided on this point. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Next question. In 1945... This justice took a year off service at the court uh, to be a prosecutor in a series of trials overseas. (laughs) Oh, the Nuremberg trials. Yes. Um, So, Justice Warren. No.
1: No. What do you mean, no? Not Warren.
0: You know who it is. We just talked about him with Judge Sutton. He was the attorney general. Oh, Jackson. Yes. Yes. I, I yeah, yeah, you just, you I, you get credit for Warren, that one. Okay. You knew. So anyway, he served as uh, this was unprecedented. He served as the chief prosecutor during the Nuremberg trials, and there were several de- decisions in that term when he was missing that ended up splitting 4-4 and some had to be re-argued once he returned to the court the fi- uh, the following year.
1: Yes. I for the record, I knew this. I'm not
0: that dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> This justice was absent from October until the following March after he was thrown from a horse. What year was this? You didn't say uh, the year. 1949. Sorry, I didn't say the year. A thrown from a horse. I have no idea. He was also known for his um, kind of wild personal life.
1: Oh, is this the guy who left the court and then the Senate
0: refused to confirm him again? No. Longest serving justice, I believe.
1: I don't know. Okay,
0: it's Justice William O. Douglas. He apparently broke 13 ribs when he was thrown from a horse. And then just four months after he returned to the court, he was hospitalized again because he was kicked by a horse. (laughs) So I think (laughs) the moral of the story is that Justice Douglas needed to stay away from horses. (laughs) It's like a Justice
1: Breyer level
0: of accidents. (laughs) Um, Final question. This justice missed several days due to an injury and subsequent surgery. She recently announced that she is a partly bionic woman. Oh,
1: um, I'm going to say Justice Sotomayor because she recently broke her shoulder.
0: Yes, yes, she broke her shoulder (laughs) when she fell in April and she had to have surgery. And she said that she's a partly bionic woman uh, when she spoke at, I believe it was the American Constitution Society, had an event last week. Well, these were hard, (laughs) but I think think you did a good job, and I think they were very informative for our our listeners. (laughs) Uh, But thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at
1: SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.